I don't think I need to belabor the point that this world is hopelessly chaotic. You only need to turn on your evening news, listen to what people say, see the reports that come in from this country, from around the world. The world is filled with chaos. National politics and international politics seem driven by people bent on self-destruction. But of course, there is nothing new under the sun. You see, the people of Judah, to whom Isaiah wrote this, they suffered under the ambitions of the king of Assyria, and they suffered under the hubris of their own king, Hezekiah. And they certainly would agree with you and I this morning that this world, that their world, is hopelessly chaotic. You see, the world as they knew it was a complete mess. Their situation was dire. And so the question for them, as it is for us this morning, is, is it possible, was it possible for them, and is it possible for us today to be cheerful in a world that seems so insane, so chaotic and mad? And the resounding answer from this message is yes, because believers are secure in God's lordship. Believers are secure in God's lordship. That is to say, believers, we who know God as our covenant Lord, we find strength in chaos because God is the absolute Lord over world events. Now, as you remember, Isaiah chapter 40, our uh, passage from last week, that chapter ended with the promise, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And this chapter, chapter 41, begins with the Lord saying, um, let the peoples renew their strength. So that's the connection Chapter 40 ended with, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. And chapter 41 says, let the peoples renew their strength. Why? Because, you see, if Isaiah simply leaves chapter 40 as it is, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. You know, that's a promise that sounds too good to be true, unless it's elaborated upon, unless it's explained. It's simply words. And so that is what God is doing in this chapter. He is filling in the blanks, and he is showing us how people that live in a messed up world can be cheerful and find strength amidst the chaos. And so uh, verse 2, God says, Who stirred up one from the east? whom victory meets at every step. He gives up nations before him. God gives up nations before him so that he, the one from the east, tramples kings underfoot. Now what Isaiah is doing here is he is introducing to us a third power. The first power, of course, was Assyria. 
And at this point, by this point, Assyria, which was uh, the source of great consternation for God's people, is no longer a threat to Israel. And we read in the previous chapters how that happened. God graciously, miraculously, and powerfully defended Jerusalem from the Assyrians and drove them back. And so at this point, that first power, Assyria, is no longer a threat to Israel. And I think that is itself really instructive because, you know, Israel could not see beyond the threat of Assyria. And because they could not see the, the threat of Assyria, they compromised their spiritual identity in fear. But God, God dealt with Assyria powerfully, graciously, and miraculously. But that newfound peace, having witnessed God dealing with their their foe, their enemy, their threat, that newfound peace made Hezekiah too comfortable. Isn't that what we often experience too? God answers our prayers and he takes away the source of great trial, pain, and we become all of a sudden really comfortable. And that's what happened to Hezekiah and his complacency brought upon Israel a second powerful empire of Babylon. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. And once again, Israel cannot see beyond the threat of Babylon. It's ruin, it's death, it's the end. But God, he says in verse 2, he is stirring up one from the east. And this is where Isaiah is introducing to his readers the third power, Cyrus of Persia. Because it is Cyrus of the, per, uh, of the Persian Empire that will come and conquer Babylon, the present threat for Israel. And God, by stirring up and bringing Cyrus upon Babylon, God will deal with the threat of Babylon just as easily as it dealt with Assyria. And I think that's really instructive for us, isn't it? We often cannot see beyond our most immediate uh, trial, and we panic. And because of fear, we sometimes even compromise, thinking that there is no future for us. But God deals with it so effectively, so graciously, And when the next trial comes, we should remember that God has helped us, but we forget. And then once again, we are plunged into despair and darkness and hopelessness, only to see God not acting as our lack of faith deserves, but acting according to His grace, and He helps us again, but we forget again. So this is the lesson that Isaiah is saying. You, you cannot see beyond the threat of Babylon. But God is raising up Cyrus of Persia, and he will deal with your present threat. 
And I think this is where we realize, on the surface, world events appear without a plot or reason. And on the surface, it, it may seem as though the only thing that ever seems to get done in the world are the selfish desires of despots. You know, it's the powerful people who move history, it seems like. But we need to see that, see that it is God, God who has a firm grasp on the upheavals of human history. And in fact, what appears to us as upheavals is actually God driving his story and his plot forward. So let me ask you, what would happen if you and I took this lesson to heart? If you and I really took to our heart that God he is in firm control of world events, big and small, and even what appears to us as random, chaotic, irrational, is nothing but God moving his story, his plot forward for the good of his name and for the good of his people. If, if we really took that to heart, what would happen to us? I think it would stabilize our souls. We would neither fear too greatly or be impressed over much when world events baffle us. Instead, we would press on with faith. You see, God does not just rule over people who acknowledge him. His lordship extends over even those who seem most opposed to his will. And God uses and disposes of them as he pleases, all to care for his covenant people. Believers are secure in God's lordship. But then again in this chapter, there is a great contrast that is being drawn. And that is the second point this morning. And if the first point is that believers are secure in God's lordship, the second point is that the unbelievers are insecure in idols' lies. Unbelievers are insecure in idols' lies. Once again, God's power over history means strength for God's people. Yes, the world is unbelievably messy, and our situations may be indeed dire, and yet we know and we trust that God has absolute control over history. He has absolute control over everything that happens in this world big or small, and that gives us incredible hope and strength. But those that do not have God as their covenant Lord, they live in a constant fear, and they commit their well-being to idols, and they cheer each other on in their idolatry. So look at verse 6. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. Be strong doing what? 
Be strong making idols. Be strong committing your well-being to idols. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer, uh, him who strikes the anvil. We all know that faith in God unites believers in fellowship. But did you know that fear also unites unbelievers in a fellowship of idolatry? And that's what we are seeing here. And if you look at verse 7, Isaiah sounds almost exasperated. They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. That's what Isaiah says. They nail down their idols. Why? Uh, it may be one of two reasons, probably both true. They have to nail down their idols because their idols cannot stand on its own. And they have to nail down their idols because they cannot protect them from thieves. And that's what exasperates Isaiah. Because how can such a pathetic God, and this is a God with a small g, and with quotations around it, how can a pathetic God that needs to be nailed down unless it topples over, how can a pathetic God that can't even protect himself from being stolen help anyone? And if you look at verses 21 and on, even God challenges them. Set forth your case. Bring your proof so that I may know that you are actually God's. Tell us the former things or declare to us the things to come. Do you know the past? Do you know the future? God is interrogating the idols of man. But of course, they know neither the past nor the future. So how can they possibly know the meaning of history? And God continues, and do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. You know what God is saying to the idols? Do something, <laughs> anything. <laughs> Let me see and be impressed, or let me see and be afraid. Do something. Do anything. You know, when people apply for jobs, they fill out a resume. And in the resume, there is a section to list all your past accomplishments and skills, experiences. If these idols had a resume, it would be one blank page. They have done nothing. They can do nothing. They will do nothing. That is why God says, do something, anything. Do good or do harm that we may be dismayed and terrified. And he says, behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And in verse 29, God calls them all a delusion. You see, they are just the product of the people who made them. No wiser and no more powerful than those who turned to useless things to find a sliver of comfort in a world that frightens them. You know, ancient people made idols to feel safe in a scary world. You know, there are idols that they made. It made them feel like God was near them, that they were near God. And it gave them a measure of comfort. 
in a scary world. And I think it's instructive and it's worthwhile for us to think about what makes us feel safe. What makes us feel like we have a handle on life? What makes us feel like that our life is not just some unnumbered days strung together without reason? But what makes us feel like that our life has some purpose? I think that's what we need to be asking. Because you see, the thing that we turn to when we are afraid, the thing that gives us hope, the thing that we turn to when we are bored, that just might be our idols. What makes you feel safe? Is it having a certain political party in control of our nation? What makes you feel like you have a handle on life? That you have a great job, a lot of money saved away? What makes you feel like your life has some purpose? That people look for you, they look up to you? You see, we are in no position to pass judgment on the superstitions of the ancient people because we do the same thing when God's power and purpose do not anchor our souls. And so we need to smash our idols because the things we turn to to find security, comfort, meaning, hope, purpose, that these things that we turn to are the products of our own fear and hubris and they can no more help us than the idols of Isaiah's days. Unbelievers are insecure. The idols lies. And that brings us to the third and the last point, that there is no fear in Christ. No fear in Christ. Idols simply because they are the product of our own making. They are our images, full of our own fears, our own insecurities, our own limitations, weaknesses. Idols cannot help us. Then who can? Notice that God helps us. Three times in this passage, God says, fear not. Verses 10, 13, and 14. And listen to verse 10. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. Not an idol. You don't have as your God meaningless, useless, impotent idols. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Look at verse 13. For I, the Lord, your God, holds you, holds your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Verse 14. Fear not, you warm Jacob. 
You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Fear not. You know, these three verses contain a world of theology, power, and comfort. And if you have never memorized the verse in the Bible, I think these three should be at the top. Because if, even if you didn't know anything about God or the Bible, if you know these three verses, you, you know a lot. You know a lot about who God is. You know a lot about His care for you. You know a lot about His power. It is God who says, fear not. And he's, He promises every help for every trial. Trees in the wilderness, because when you are traveling in the wilderness, what do you need the most? Shade over you. Water in the weary uh, desert places. Again, what do you need when you are in the desert? Water. And so much of this chapter is very uh, tangible descriptions of God meeting every need of his people. And one thing stands out. Well, actually, more than one thing stands out, but we only have time to focus on one thing. You, God says to Israel, you shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. The promise is nothing less than a total deliverance from all fear and all foes. And of course, this is something that will be fulfilled only when God's kingdom comes in its final and fullness of power. When on that day, as Isaiah has taught us repeatedly in the past chapters, when God comes with power and glory, and only then there will be complete deliverance from all fear and foe. And so there is that pivotal, important revelation in verse 4. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. The God who says, fear not, fear not, fear not. That God is the first and with the last. And do you remember what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 1? He said, fear not. I am the first and the last. And do you remember once again what Jesus said in verse uh, Revelation chapter 22? He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, beginning and the end. He says, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see the promises of this chapter, Isaiah 41, when God says, fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am the first, I am the last. Fear not, I will help you. These promises are all leading us to Jesus. And you know that, that is the meaning of history. God is moving his plot forward to glorify his people in Christ, and he is moving his a plot forward in order to glorify Christ in his people. 
and Jesus. He is not useless or powerless like man-made idols. You know, isn't it ironic? The idols needed to be nailed down. Jesus was also nailed down. But Jesus was not nailed down because he could not help himself. Jesus was not nailed down because he could not protect himself. But Jesus was nailed down to the cross in order to unleash God's saving power. And it is the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Jesus Christ nailed to the cross that tells us that even when things look absolutely dire and we despair, the reality is never as we perceive them or as we experience them, but reality is as God has determined long ago and will be in his time. If so, why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? One of the best things, it seems to me, for our mental and spiritual health is disengage a little bit from social media. I think much of social media is a fellowship of unbelief, chasing their idols, looking for comfort in a world that frightens them. And there's always and only bad news. The best thing we can do for our mental and spiritual health is to disengage from our social media. But better than that is to open up the Bible and see that our God is in absolute control over world events and history, and that God's plot, his design from long ago, which will be fully fulfilled in his time, is to glorify Christ in his people and to glorify his people in Christ. And that because of that, that our lives have a purpose far greater and far nobler than we can possibly imagine. Because we are meant to be the proof of God's saving power, and we are meant to be the proof of God's gracious love. So why are we afraid? Yes, the world is messed up. Yes, the world can be and is a very scary place. But recognizing all of that, we can be cheerful. Recognizing all of that, we can renew our strength because Jesus, he will never fail you. By no means. And no one is more safe than the man and the woman who is in Christ. And that is why God says, let them renew their strength in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us and teaching us that you reign, that you are sovereign, that you are king, and that you hold us 
lovingly and tenderly and gently in your powerful hands and that you will fulfill for us one day the promise that we will be delivered completely and forever from all our fears and our foes. And so I pray, Father, we are indeed surrounded by terrible news, fearful things. Help us to look to Jesus and in him find our strength and rest. For it is in his name we pray. Amen.